RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. What is the potential for a gold-backed BRICS trade currency? Well, our next guest who returns to RCR, it's been about a month since we heard from Matthew Pippenberg, thinks that even BRICS nations are not ready to commit to a gold-backed trading currency, let alone a gold-backed sovereign currency. He says he believes they're unwilling to limit their financial powers in this way at this time. And of course, people are thinking about gold because uh, I think most of us are aware there's a huge debt issue in the world. Currencies could slide at any time. What is the position of the US currency as the global reserve currency? All these questions kind of lead back to the subject of gold. So Matthew Pippenberg, um, welcome back to Reality Check Radio. Great to have you again. Thanks. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the, the conversation, Paul. Looking forward to it. Okay, first got to ask you, because there have been huge developments. I mean, I'm talking about BRICS there, and you know that mm-hmm. was news a few weeks ago when those nations kind of got together and expanded their sort of group. But in the last few days, the terrible events of um, in the Middle East with uh, Israel, Gaza, that that part of the world, and what we've been seeing, images that have been coming through, pretty bad, and the countries that seem to be involved or have been making comment in support of one side or the <laughs> other. Is mm-hmm. that material in in global economy terms? What are you thinking about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, geopolitics is a massive force in addition to central banks and um, bond markets and all the things that we track in a vacuum. Then there's these extraneous events. Obviously, the Ukraine war had a massive impact on on the development of BRICS relationships and currency flows and de-dollarization and the, the debate between a strong and weak U.S. dollar and all those trends came right after the sanctions which came after the Ukraine war, which is already a big enough headache and social and, and, and human catastrophe in so many ways with the with the, the terrible casualty lists and the geopolitical ramifications. And then in just the last few days, we've had this kind of black swan event out of Israel, which is another humanitarian crisis. It's so many levels. It's very, uh, a very sensitive topic. It, it, um, it's a very uh, political topic, but it's obviously a human crisis. And clearly the images we're all seeing are appalling and disturbing and uh scary and of course they have impacts uh beyond just gaza the west bank the east jerusalem the you know the the damascus gates i've been to israel a couple times and you can't help but have tremendous respect for what israel has done and what it's accomplished at the same time you know and tremendous empathy for the israeli people and at the same time and if you're being objective if you cross the you know east jerusalem go through the damascus gates and walk around the west bank it's it's also got its own problems there it's another humanitarian crisis for the palestinians so there there are pro and con statements you can make for both sides and sympathies for both sides but when you see want and violence um whether you label them terrorists or not it's 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 appalling to watch it creates uh, a great deal of sentiment um and clearly support for innocent people that are caught up in this mess um, in terms of the ramifications geopolitically, obviously, when you look at any crisis in the Middle East, you're 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 talking about. I hate to say it because they're dry topics. When you get away from the human crisis, which is far more palpable and meaningful to the citizens there um, on both sides of the West Bank um, and the loss of lives, but when you talk about dry numbers, you look at the ripple effects of what will this mean 
for escalating of a war, of violence, uh, relationships with Iran, and uh, what will Saudi Arabia do? What will oil prices do? Uh, what will American sanctions do? Will there be American uh, indirect support? Will the war escalate? Will that put a greater strain on our treasury and our bond markets? Will it put a greater risk of uh, you know heightened conflict? So all these things tie together um, in a drier way, getting away from the humanitarian way to more and more costs, more and more military costs, more and more military support. Obviously, the U.S. is a major ally of Israel. Will this escalate in a Zelensky-like way to more uh, military support um, for the Israelis? Um, will those borders change in the Middle East? What will be Saudi's response? What will be Lebanon's response? What will be Iran's response? And, and it just starts to fall out of our ability to predict in any meaningful way today. It certainly puts pressure if we support Israel on our already extended IOUs in U.S. Treasuries, which are falling in price and raising in cost, because when bond prices fall, bond yields go up. When bond yields go up, interest rates follow. Interest rates are the cost of debt. America is the home of the U.S. Treasury, which is part of the world reserve currency. The rest of the world has to pay dollar-denominated dollar debts to the tune of 14-plus trillion that are outside of just the U.S. banks. So, when, when bond market stress and interest rate stress occurs and debt stress occurs, nations around the world, which have to pay back debts in U.S. dollar terms at rising rates in a stressed bond market, have to then, you know, pay higher costs when they're already stretched too thin. So, you know, again, and then, of course, there's the obvious question about oil pricing. When you have a crisis in the Middle East or the Strait of Hormuz or you have threats of closing that or the movement of oil, which is already a very political and economic force in the world. You know, you've got a blender, Paul, of so many things, of human crisis, of a bond crisis, of an oil crisis, which, of course, has an effect on an inflation crisis, and, of course, a rate crisis. Boring things like yields and, and rates may seem abstract or academic, but when governments have to pay uh, debts back at higher costs, they hit a point of what we call fiscal dominance, where as you raise rates or manipulate bond markets, the cost of your debt repaying those IOUs becomes so painful that you have to then synthetically create more liquidity, you know, mouse click money to pay yeah. your own debts, which is inherently inflationary. So the spin just continues and continues. If you have a market crisis, that can be temporarily disinflationary and take pressure off of inflation, but you're taking pressure off of inflation by creating a recession and stressing out the middle class or the main street economy. So it's just this really vicious circle where there really are very few good scenarios left. Um, and, you know, this this primary question, it's too early to tell. It's hard to imagine a quick solution when you get a sudden crisis like this in one of the most fragile parts of the world. We, You know, for so many months, the narrative has been NATO and the Ukraine and the important debate about that. I know you had an RNZ journalist I think fired just for considering the possibility that it was a, an American proxy war. Correct. So, yeah. So to e to even talk about these things, uh, hopefully, won't get you in trouble. To talk about things no, in, okay. in, in, uh, on the Ukraine border was already delicate enough. When you're talking about Israel or the Middle East and that long history uh, of de you know constantly debated who's got the right to be where, who has the power, who has the money, all of that suddenly becomes abstract when when innocent people are dying. Of course. But 
the ripple effects that came out of the Ukraine war are manifold. The ripple effects to come out of this latest crisis, I hope it's resolved soon. The cynical, cynical realist in me doesn't see how that's possible. But again, I hope I'm wrong on that. It's very hard for me to predict or any of us to predict. Uh, hopefully it's contained. But again, at what price? And can you really control these events once they unleash? And again, the real question I think will be, to see the reaction from other countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia, the UAE, the oil prices in terms of any immediate um, ramifications. Uh, I'm very concerned. Of course, everyone's concerned. And of course, you're always concerned about any type of uh, escalating military conflict in that very fragile part of the world. I, I don't see how it doesn't have more deleterious uh, impacts on the global economy. What's ironic right now in the U.S. markets, which again, I know I'm in Europe, but I'm an American, you're in New Zealand. Why are we talking about U.S. markets? But whether we like it or not, the U.S. is the home of the world reserve currency. It's the home of the U.S. Treasury. It's the most important bond yield in the world. It's the most important currency in the world, love it or hate it. And in U.S. markets, impact uh, Fed policy and interest rate policy. What we're seeing, ironically, with this terrible news out of the Middle East, markets had a temporary drawdown, and then they started to rip a little bit north because the central banks, for a number of reasons, are now talking more dovishly. Uh, they're they're saying that they're being dovish because of, you know, a Fed official or a Fed vice chair saying, okay, interest rates are high enough, we're willing to pause or maybe even cut rates into the next year. I think that is concomitant with what just happened in Israel. There's a sense that, okay, there's a crisis now. We're going to probably need to create more money. We're going to have to go from hawkish to dovish. That's ironically when bad news becomes good news. That's the new normal in a central bank-driven world. If a war or rising rates or higher for longer policies by our central bank create bankruptcies and layoffs, that's one thing. When, when you also have a war um, – on top of this higher for longer stress on the American economy and the global economy, there's a breaking point. And if rates pause or continue, or or even if they go down, which would be even more dovish, that actually usually happens on the back of really bad news, like bankruptcies and layoffs, and now a war or possible uh, crisis in the Middle East. That bad news means the Fed's going to be more supportive of synthetic liquidity of mouse click money. And that bad news then becomes ironically good news uh, for the stock markets. You know, just a week ago, this is fancy lingo for Wall Street. We call it the put call ratio, which basically just means puts are, are bearish on the markets. And that was the highest it's been in 2023. And there was a major short going on at Goldman Sachs on the markets. Well, on the heels of this bad news out of Israel, and the FOMC, there was a major short squeeze and the market started to rip. The VIX, which is a volatility index, can't break 20. Now there's talk of, of, of ripping markets north because there's the sense that the Fed will be more supportive of the markets. Again, kind of Wall Street jingoey, but I'm saying the ironic, ironic shift now is that markets are being positive on a more supportive central bank, which is being more supportive on the back of more negative news out of the Middle East. So it, you can't make this crazy up. Uh, no. Really, it is uh, bad news is good news. And, uh, you know, and of course, when when the Fed goes from hawkish to dovish, that usually means or foretells that the market's anticipating um you know, more money printing in the next year, in the next 12 months. Well, that obviously is good for gold because when central banks start creating money out of thin air, that's inherently inflationary. That inherently affects longer term the inherent purchasing power of the US dollar, which affects all currencies. 
And so that is just another case for the long-term understanding of gold investors because gold investors, not speculators, buy gold because they don't trust the inherent purchasing power of their local or global or world reserve currency. They see gold as a better store of value. In some ways, these crises fall into our hands for gold investors. My colleague, uh, Egon von Greyers and I, obviously we've been talking a lot over the weekend about what's happening in Israel. And certainly we've been talking for over a year about what happened in Ukraine and de-dollarization. And as gold investors, we can sit back and calmly, patiently wait for gold to react as it will. But be careful what you ask for as a gold investor. Gold loves chaos. Gold loves the, the base currencies. Gold loves quantitative easing. But all of those things occur when the world is suffering and when the world is going through seismic shifts. Uh, gold certainly helps solve a currency problem. It doesn't solve all these problems, these human, all too human, geopolitical and uh, religious and ideological problems that, you know, sadly, the more they change, the more they stay the same. So uh, there's a lot of things happening in markets, in gold and in, in geopolitics right now. Because um, the BRICS nations and the expanded group includes Iran. It includes mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia. Now, I think they have said that... Um, they're breaking off, you know, the efforts to restore normal relations or or a normal sort of yeah. kind of relationship with Israel. Iran yeah. um, <laughs> seemed to be quite in quite a belligerent uh, mood. There's Russia, Ukraine. These are, you know, part of the BRICS side. So does that mm -hmm. force or could it force it? I, I, I mean, we, none of us can predict the future, really, but that, that kind of forces the function for those um, nations to kind of harden up and mm -hmm. stick closer together, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And they would want mm -hmm. to, or they'd be more mindful now of, well, creating their own kind of currency and and uh, and, mm -hmm. and exiting de-dollarizing. Mm -hmm. Is that what could happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, again, this the, the, what's happening in Israel and what happened in the Ukraine are two great starting and ending points in this conversation about the BRICS and de-dollarization. I mean, um, without getting into partisan or political or ideological debates of whether the Ukraine is a just war or a proxy war or a U.S.-led war or a CIA war or not, or whether it's a war of freedom, whether Zelensky is you know, George Washington reborn or just another U.S. Yeah, puppet. Churchill. You, 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 can, you get past all that and you just look at the simple realities that I think most of us can agree on that, you know, and I'm not alone in this. There was Grant Williams or even Jim Rickards and many others from literally day one. And this gets to Israel, but from literally day one of the sanctions uh, when when the Ukraine war got hot. And again, you could spend hours just talking about how that was an avoidable war and maybe that really was an intentional war or not by, led by U.S. ideologues and neocons. But you get past that. The moment the West, which really was led by the U.S., decided to freeze the FX reserves of a major country like Russia, a nuclear power like Russia, and the moment they took Russia off the IMF's SDR access and froze its SWIFT accounts, its ability to transfer money globally. When those sanctions kicked in, it was obvious that this was going to be a shot in the foot for the West and not a shot in the chest to Russia. It just meant uh, over a year ago that China and Russia and other BRICS nations would become more galvanized, more closer in relations. And this is something that China and Russia have been looking for a pretext to do. When I say de-dollarize, that does not mean that China and Russia are immediately able to create a new BRICS currency or immediately able to destroy the dollar. 
But what they did foresee, and China and Russia are patient, long-thinking countries, not looking for immediate re-election like in the West. This was the this fell into their lap. This ability now to de-dollarize, and again, this I've said from the very beginning, de-dollarization is a very slow process. It's not overnight, but it is a move away from a debt-based world reserve trading currency to a commodity-based currency where you don't need a BRICS-backed gold currency for BRICS nations, which are expanding in number, the BRICS plus nations, to arbitrage real assets, including gold for other real assets. You don't have to have a BRICS-backed currency. We can talk about the details of why, but what we're slowly seeing is a move away uh, from the dollar. It's gradual, but that takes dollar demand down. Um, and we can talk about that. De-dollarization is now inevitable. The hegemony of the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency is over. It doesn't mean, as Rick Rule said, the supremacy of the U.S. dollar is over. It's a slow drip. It's a death by a thousand cuts. The U.S. dollar and the U.S. Treasury are changing. The U.S. You know, the U.S. has a debt to GDP ratio of 120 percent. It's basically a bad credit issuing an IOU, which is a declining asset. It's the tail that wags the global economic dog. It's a very powerful tail still. But the BRICS nations are a sign that we're getting tired of a U.S. dollar-led world. We certainly are more tired of a weaponized world reserve currency. This is something Triffin and John Maynard Keynes warned. You can't weaponize a world reserve currency. You can throw sanctions against countries like Venezuela or Iran. When you do that to a country like Russia, you're going to have ripple effects. And those ripple effects are very obvious now. You know, fast forward, you've got Saudi Arabia and the UAE and these other countries wanting and joining the BRICS. That's not just a headline for political debate. That's a financial effect because Saudi Arabia obviously has an, a huge impact on oil pricing. The famous fist pump with Biden and, and the crown prince in Saudi Arabia versus the handshake with handshake with the crown prince and Xi suggests that Saudi Arabia, too, is no longer in love with the U.S. dollar. Oil volatility in, in the U.S. dollar terms and the petrodollar terms is extremely high when that U.S. petrodollar is not gold backed. There is a clear move and slight and sudden but real to sell oil outside of the U.S. dollar. You already see that now. China is very thirsty for oil. Russia has a tremendous amount it can sell to China in CNY. The gold price in China is higher than the spot price in London. And as the gold uh, Chinese foreign minister said in 2014, we're tired of consumption of gold in the East, but gold being priced in the West. And so slowly the Shanghai exchange is going to reprice gold. Again, this de-dollarization, this repricing of gold, this movement away from a debt-backed trade currency to a commodity-backed trade currency, all this is happening in real time. And it's not, um, it's not just anti-dollar pro-gold you know, gloom and doom. These are hard facts, but it's a slow process. Again, the world reserve currency doesn't die overnight. It's not going to happen anytime soon, but it is already showing tremendous, tremendous slowdown in demand for the U.S. dollar. And as I said prior to the BRICS conference in South Africa, there was way too much clickbait hope, uh, hype about an immediate gold-backed BRICS currency. I said that's not going to happen, but that doesn't mean that de-dollarization isn't important, and it doesn't mean that you can't have the same result. You don't need a BRICS-backed currency. You can create the same intent. And the same result, that is moving away from the dollar and moving closer to uh, real assets as arbitrage, that's already happening. And the bigger threat to the de-dollarization narrative, the bigger threat to the U.S. dollar wasn't a gold-backed currency, in my opinion. The bigger threat was a slow move away 
uh, from the petrodollar, that right. massive yeah. source of demand for the dollar. And what we're seeing now getting to Israel is when you now have a crisis in Israel, which is in the heart of the Middle East, and uh, one that I don't think will be solved overnight, but again, I hope I'm wrong, um, that creates, uh, you know, that's the bull in the china shop breaking things. And the the what will break next is very hard to foresee. I'm not a State Department spokes, I'm a market guy, but I, I can't see how this is going to be good for the oil price. And when the oil price rises and as oil trades move away from the U.S. dollar and away from U.S. policy, and if the U.S. supports Israel, what will Saudi Arabia do? What will Iran do? What will Russia do? And what will they do with the trade of energy? And whether we like it or not, the world has not even come close to being carbon neutral. Oil still matters. It's more important than the Fed. Um, we've spent trillions in the U.S. on this green initiative that came out of Davos or the left, whether you want to call it real or not. The simple fact is it's hardly made a dent in carbon neutrality. We, we don't think it's real on, on the station. We don't think it's very real. You know, again, I don't want to get you in trouble in New Zealand. So I'll, I'll try and be as, as neutral as even I can appear to be. But regardless of our views on politics, the, the, the math is simple. We haven't changed uh, uh, anything in terms of carbon neutrality. And now the oil market is about to get more volatile. If oil prices continue to rise, which I think they will, that has a massive impact on inflation, on the cost of living, on petrol costs, which are already brutal in New Zealand and brutal in Europe and brutal in the U.S. The U.S. strategic petroleum reserves are at very low levels because we've emptied those last year. We had 600 million barrels a couple of years ago. We're down to just below 300 billion, a million, excuse me, million barrels. I think our low empty point is when we hit 200 million. That's a very scary place to be. So as we have a crisis in the Middle East, we also have a crisis in our strategic petroleum reserves, strategic petroleum reserves in the U.S. Uh, production out of the Permian Basin is lower than it was last year, not higher. Biden has been trying to legislate oil out of the existence in, an, in a slow way. At the same time, the Powell's been raising rates and making the cost of production of oil even higher. So it really is a convergence of so many bad things. When you put it like that, our- Matthew, when you put it like that, it's <laughs> um, gosh, is there any upside at all? anywhere at the moment the, the, well it, it seems to be a perfect storm almost the way you describe it's it. an over it's an overused term and again many rightfully can say well you know when you got an executive selling gold in switzerland he's going to talk his book he's going to make the world look as as dramatic as possible because that's good for gold i i understand that um fortunately i'm at a point in my life and so is my partners and egon in particular we don't have to do anything to be dramatic when the facts on the ground are dramatic enough. You know, we have a very specific service for, you know, high net worth clients. They understand gold and they understand the problem. So we're not trying to be sensational. There's too much of that in the gold space enough as it is. There's too much of that in general in the media, this kind of clickbait headlines. The sad reality is, in my opinion, my I, it's, a, it's a bias, but it's a conviction. The facts on the ground are sensational enough. And to your point, Uh, Is there any good news out there? Well, even getting away from geopolitics, partisan views, cynicism about politicians, about media, about uh, oil pricing, about inflation. uh, The the simple fact is there there just is too much debt in the world. Uh, There are no good scenarios. There is going to be a need for some type of austerity. Uh, Inflation is going to get higher because debt is higher. And even if you take the oil price out of the equation, which you really can't, but even if you do, just the IOUs owed by the major global G7 countries of the world, there's bonds are being issued at rapid pace. There's no demand for those bonds. There's less faith in those currencies. 
these things are going to happen no matter what. If you tack on an oil crisis and a geopolitical crisis, uh, that just makes it worse. And I, I keep thinking of Ernest Hemingway, not George Soros or, you know, Ray Dalio. I just you know, or, you know, Biden or, or any of these central bankers. You get to the simple, stupid lessons of history, as as, as Ernest Hemingway said long, long ago, you know, when a currency, when a country's in debt, um, you've got opportunistic politicians who will distract the masses with inflation and war. And here we have inflation and escalating global wars. We got both of those. Yeah, we got yeah. both. And you know, was Hemingway simple, stupid, just right? And is war uh, a way to not only distract us, but to you know, wartime economies can be very effective. They you can have. Well, you can have well they're effectively they're a reset, aren't they? They're, they're like a hard reset, are they? Mm-hmm. In a sense, they are. And in a lot of ways, Russia's wartime economy has been very robust. We are living like we're in a wartime economy in the West uh, in an emergency measures, but we're technically at peace, although we're very much involved in this war in Ukraine. So, again, war is part of financial policy. I don't think the West created a war in Israel to you know rebound markets. I'm not saying that. I'm just no, saying no. These these forces are sadly, you know, they say here, the plus ça change, le plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more they stay the same. It's very cyclical in a sense that inflation and war go hand in hand as, as problems and solutions. But um, I, I think with the debt levels where they are, and then when you add this this problem in the Middle East, which is where a great deal of oil is produced, you add yeah. that on top of it, it's adding insult to injury. It's very hard to be positive right now, Paul. And and again, I know that that may seem like the the gloom and doom of a gold bugger. I don't think you have to be a gold mm-hmm. investor to be common sense uh, concerned about what's happening in our debt markets and our credit markets and our energy markets. And in a very, very centralized political system now where we see more and more centralized control from the left or right, more and more censorship, more and more, you know, vertically integrated medias working with governments. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a difficult time. OK, I want to get right to the local level. Our listeners listening right now thinking hmm, gold. They might not have mm-hmm. ever sort of got their heads around it before <laughs> how they should think of that. I just got one more question on this. The big picture mm-hmm. stuff. You, you say that, you know, that de-dollarization, <clears throat> excuse me, is not going to happen overnight, but it's kind of going to happen. Over mm-hmm. what sort of period of time do you think? What, a decade, couple of decades, three decades? Well, it, it's already happening. It happened day one from the sanctions. So it's already in process and it's meaningful. It's, it's definitely meaningful uh, in terms of... um you know, the the speed and scope of it, a lot of it will depend on things like geopolitics and whether if, you know, you, you know, last week I wasn't worried about war in Israel and this week we're talking about it. You know, yeah, yeah. it's hard to predict if, for example, Saudi Arabia really decided to just open the floodgates and take away the dollar as the only way to buy petrol in OPEC, that would be a, a massive watershed moment, which would accelerate de-dollarization overnight. Again, will that happen? I really don't know. Um, it's already in some ways happening indirectly because a lot of these BRICS nations are arbitraging real assets in, in their own currencies and then converting that to gold through Shanghai exchange. And so um, in terms of, you know, Egon always says predicting is a mugs game. It's hard to predict black swans. What we do know is de-dollarization has already begun. It began in earnest the day the sanctions started. You know, there was that yeah, famous yeah, arrogant yeah. quote by Condoleezza Rice that Russia would run out of money before the West ran out of energy. Well, that's just quantifiably not the case. It just hasn't yeah. hasn't been the case. The Russian ruble isn't dead. The Russian economy hasn't faltered. And Russia and China are now closer in bed than ever before. And more nations want to join the BRICS because more nations are tired of being 
having the U.S. dollar be the tail that wags their dog. And I'm not blaming every problem in the world, including Argentina and Venezuela, just on the U.S. dollar. They have inherent policy failures and inherent problems politically. But there's no doubt that the U.S. has been exporting inflation for decades. There's a great book called The Confessions of an Economic Hitman that talk about this. There's no doubt that the U.S. dollar is a bully to emerging market or developing economies. There's no doubt that these BRICS plus nations are sick of the U.S. dollar going up in price, up in debt costs, and they can't afford it. So they have to debase their currencies or raise rates to, to survive. So there is a genuine frustration with American monetary policy exported globally. And now the war in the Ukraine has allowed these nations to rethink and regroup and collectivize uh, the pace of how fast that will move. Um, it could be 10 years. It could be five minutes if something happens yeah, in Saudi Arabia. So yeah, I, I, I'm not understand. trying to avoid the question, but I don't want to give false. No, no, I understand. I understand. Yeah. yeah. Okay. For our listeners who are listening to all of this and thinking, oh my God, you know, are my savings going to be safe? And they hear a lot about gold. How should they think about it? How should they visualize it? Are they visualizing turning X amount of their holdings into physical bars of gold? And then how do you use that store of value going forward? How should they think about it? It's, it's an extremely important question. Of course, let me caveat. I am a partner at one at the largest um, private gold vaulting service and trading service in the world outside of the commercial banks. I have a clear bias for gold. You could argue that that bias clouds my judgment. That's fair. Um, but I also could be selling bonds for Goldman Sachs or running a hedge fund. And I'm not saying that out of flippancy. I'm just saying I actually am in the gold space because I personally have looked at risk assets for decades and I've looked at uh, currencies and politics for decades. And I chose gold voluntarily, as did my partners, including Egon von Greyers, who certainly uh, has the same convictions I do. So to your question, I, I look at gold not to solve every problem in the world. Again, it doesn't. What I look at gold as, there are different types of investors. There are speculators, there are investors, there are growth-focused investors. Um, our clients, which come from over 90 countries in the world to store their gold in Switzerland, are at the point in their lives uh, where they're looking to preserve their whatever wealth they have. And, and they, they look at gold as a store of value and as a hedge against banking risk and currency risk. You don't have to be a wealthy foreigner expat with a vault access in Switzerland to understand, though, that you can you can protect whatever income you have with a partial allocation to gold. Central banks and global currencies are no longer gold backed, which means you have to become your old your own gold backed central banker privately. Yeah. And and. And the you know the, the standing back at thirty thousand feet, despite all the the hype and and all the gold bug versus gold bulls and gold bears and the crypto debates and currency debates and central bankers promising that their currencies are going to be strong, keep it simple, stupid. Um, you know, I I always use the analogy of a chaperone. I had teenage kids; they're growing older and mature now. But God knows we were all the same when when our parents left for the weekend. What did we do? When there's no chaperone, we get drunk. We have keg parties. We, break, we invite the girls. We invite the boys. It's typical human nature. Well, it's the same thing with currencies. If you take away a chaperone, they're going to get drunk and they're going to spend and spend and spend because now there is no need to keep your currency tied to a, a certain storage level of gold. When you take away the gold chaperone, like we did in 71 with the World Reserve Currency or Nixon, America went on a, on a keg party and they were able to create unlimited amounts of dollars, just like the euro can create unlimited amounts of euros out of the ECB or the Royal Bank of Australia, or et cetera. 
the, the chaperone's gone. The party begins. Parties are fun, and they're a lot of fun until the hangover. And we've had a 50-year party. Now, the hangover's already begun, but in some ways, it's been death by a thousand cuts because since 1971, if you look at the major global currencies, uh, you look at the G7 countries, you look at the euro, you look at... Uh, the French franc, I mean, excuse me, the Swiss franc, or you look at the U.S. dollar, the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar. Since 1971, all of the major fiat currencies without a chaperone since 1971, when measured against a milligram of gold, have lost over 95% of their inherent purchasing power when measured against gold. To me, that's the simplest stupid metric. There are people who say, yeah, but gold goes up and down. We had these periods, five-year period, we didn't do anything. The S&P's done more for me. That's, that's all important and all relevant, but irrelevant because the real f lighthouse in the fog of all these debates is very simple. Fiat currencies are getting weaker, not gold getting stronger. Gold holds its value as the as the as the dollar, Canadian, Australian, New Zealand, or the yuan, or the euro, or the yen, and your or the peso, for God's sakes, in your pocket gets weaker. It's not that gold makes you overnight rich; it's that gold protects your wealth better than fiat paper right. money. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, what people are going to remember. That's what they're going to remember. It's that's the I've looked at a thousand charts on a thousand asset classes. I've looked at a thousand charts on gold, not because I'm so smart, but that's my business. And of course, I'm biased. And of course, I have a conviction and maybe I'm deluding myself. Um, but I've just looked at so many when I when I look at that simple chart of the purchasing power of the global currencies versus a milligram of gold. Since we lost that chaperone, you see the hangover over the years. You see the, the consequences of that keg party, the politics of needing to print more money to stay alive and not have a chaperone. It's like a teenager doesn't want his parents to come home so the party can go on and on. But like any teenager who drinks too much or parties too much, there's going to be a lot of broken furniture, uh, a lot of sick kids in the in the restrooms. And the cops it's, might turn up. And the yeah. cops might turn up eventually. And then, and then, of course, like a good teenager, you'll blame it on somebody else. It was your twin brother, your twin sister, or some other friend who ruined it. And, and you know, what the central bankers are doing now and the policymakers, they're blaming our base currency and our debt crisis on COVID, on Putin, on little green men from Mars, or on climate change. Yeah. Because God forbid they look in the mirror and say, you know what, mom and dad, it was me who broke the car and got drunk and, and destroyed the house. They will not pathologically cannot take responsibility for their own monetary policies. Wow. Um, there's a lot to think about there. And Matt, you're just amazing at, um, at uh, putting it in front of us. Um, it's incredible listening to what you have to say. Thanks for coming back on uh, reality check radio. Um, uh, Matt Pipenberg from Matterhorn asset management in Switzerland. I think you're based in France though. And um, I hope we can chat again. It's always good um, touching base with you. Always a pleasure, Paul. Thanks for having me on again. I hope it was helpful. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.